0: This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the second portion of Chapter 5 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. This podcast will cover two sections of Chapter 5, Section 5.5, called the Metric Tensor, and Section 5.6, which is about using the metric tensor to raise or lower indices. Section 5.5 begins on page 140, and the first paragraph of this section reminds you that vector components only come about when you assign a coordinate system. That is, the vector exists independent of the coordinate system, but the vector's components apply only for the coordinate system you've chosen. You'll sometimes see the word arithmetize used for that. That is, the coordinate system provides you a way of doing arithmetic with the objects in the space. And there's all kinds of coordinate systems that you can use. Some of them, as it says in this paragraph, have straight axes that intersect at right angles, like the Cartesian coordinates. Others have curved axes, and those curved axes may intersect at a right angle, or they may intersect at different angles. But irrespective of what coordinate system you choose, there is a tensor that allows you to define and work with fundamental quantities, such as lengths and angles, at any point in the space. That tensor is called the metric tensor because it provides the metric for the space. As we're going to see in a few minutes, it shows you how to do dot products which involve lengths and angles in that space. The metric tensor may also be called the fundamental tensor and it's often written with the lowercase letter G. Some people write it as a tensor, some people write it in bold. Most often I think you'll see it written with two indices, either superscripts or subscripts, for reasons we're going to talk about in a minute. I think it's easiest to understand the metric tensor by thinking about two points in space that are separated by an infinitesimal distance, which we call ds. Imagine a little vector dr that extends from one to the other, which if you dot it into itself, that is if you take dr.dr, dr, you get the square of ds, you get the square of the distance between those points. So what does dr.dr dr look like? Well, like any vector, we can write it using components and basis vectors. That's done in the first equation in the middle of page 140, where dr is written with e sub i, that is the covariant basis vector, tangent to the coordinate axes, times dx superscript i, which means the contravariant component of the incremental distance vector. But you can also write the same vector, dr, using the dual or reciprocal basis vector, that is, the contravariant basis vector, e superscript i, and then the covariant components of the incremental distance vector. That's done in the second equation on this page. So when you form the dot product, dr dot dr, you can write the dr on either side of the dot using either one of these two expressions. And the three possible cases are shown at the bottom of this page and the top of page 141. First of all, ds squared, that is dr.dr, is written using the covariant basis vectors and the contravariant components on each side of the dot. You see that at the bottom of page 140 where it says dr.dr is equal to e sub i dx superscript i dot e sub j dx superscript j. Now the vector components dx super i and dx super j are just scalars, so those can be brought together on the right side, and you end up with the quantity e sub i dot e sub j times dx super i, dx super j. Notice in the last equation on this page, the dot product of those two basis vectors is written as g sub ij. That dot product between covariant basis vectors makes the covariant components of the metric tensor. As an alternative, we could have written dr using the contravariant basis vectors and the covariant components. That's shown on the top of page 141. There you see dr dot dr as e superscript i dx sub i dot e superscript j dx sub j. When you move the scalars to the right and dot the basis vectors together, you get the quantity e superscript i dot e superscript j, which in the third line we then write as g superscript ij. These are the contravariant components of the metric tensor and you get them by dotting together the dual or contravariant basis vectors. The third way we could have done this is to use covariant basis vectors on one side and contravariant on the other side. And that's what's done next on page 141. There you see we take ds squared as e sub i dx superscript i dot e superscript j dx sub j. Once again, we gather the scalars on the right and the vectors on the left, and now we get the quantity e sub i dot e superscript j times dx superscript i dx sub j. But notice that in this case we replace the e sub i dot e superscript j with one rather than the elements of a metric tensor. Why is that? It's explained in the next sentence where it says, remember, when you have a covariant basis vector such as e sub i and a contravariant basis vector such as e superscript j, that means that you're dotting a basis vector that points tangent to the coordinate axes with a dual basis vector that is perpendicular to the coordinate axes. So when you take e sub i dot e superscript j, if i and j are the same, then you're dotting together an original coordinate basis vector with the corresponding dual basis vector, and you know that that must equal 1. Why? Because the very definition of dual basis vectors guarantees that when you dot each dual basis vector with the corresponding basis vector that's tangent to the coordinate axis, you get 1. Likewise, we know that each dual basis vector is perpendicular to all the original basis vectors tangent to the coordinate axes that have a different index. So if i does not equal j, then this term must equal zero. So if you have an early printing of the book, know that this i and j must be the same. I'll make this explicit in later printings. So there's really three different ways to write that ds squared. We could have g sub ij dx superscript i dx superscript j, or we could have g superscript ij dx sub i dx sub j, or if we mix the contravariant and covariant quantities, we could just have dxi dxj, where j must equal i. And you know, of course, that dS squared must be the same no matter which coordinate system you choose to use and what components you choose to employ. Therefore, you can see that the metric tensor performs the task of turning that product of those incremental coordinate changes into the square of the invariant distance between those points. So it really is providing the geometry of that space. This might be a little more clear when you read the next few paragraphs, which says since geometry is really all about lengths and angles, let's look at the lengths of some vectors and the angles between some vectors and see how the metric tensor plays there. We know that if we have a vector a, we can find its length by using a dot a. That's actually going to give us the square of the length, but we'll take the square root as you'll see. So how are we going to form a dot a? Well one way is shown in the first equation on the bottom half of page 141, which says the length or magnitude of vector a is equal to the square root of a dot a, Which, if we write a using the contravariant component a superscript i and the covariant basis vectors e sub i, and then on the other side of the dot, the contravariant components a superscript j and the covariant basis vectors e subscript j. So on the next line we do the same thing we did with our ds squared, which is to get the basis vectors together and to get the components on the right, And you see that the basis vectors dotted together give you the g sub ij times the product of the contravariant components. And of course you take the square root of that whole thing to get the length of a. But just as we did a minute ago, we could have written this using the covariant components a sub i and a sub j, and the contravariant or dual basis vectors e superscript i and e superscript j you see that at the bottom of page 141 once again we gather up the dot product of the basis vectors and you get g superscript ij times a sub i a sub j and again take the square root finally we can mix those components that's done on the top of page 142 where a dot a is written as a superscript i e sub i dotted into a sub j e superscript j When you do that and gather the basis vectors together, you get 1 for the reasons we talked about before and the square root of a super i, a sub j. Where once again, i and j must be the same. Now you know that the length has to be the same no matter how you express the vector, so clearly it's the presence of the metric tensor in the first two of these expressions for the length of A that makes sure that all three of these expressions are going to give us the same value no matter which components we choose to use. So that dealt with lengths, but what about angles? Of course one way to get an angle between two vectors is to use the dot product, so if we want to know the angle between A and B, we know that the dot product of A dot B gives us the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B times the cosine of the angle between them, and we showed in an earlier chapter that we can use that to solve for cosine theta where theta is the angle between A and B. That's written there in the middle of page 142 where you see cosine theta is A dot B over the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B. But we just saw several different ways that we can write the dot product and the length of vectors, and we use each of those ways in the next three lines. In the first, you see the covariant components of the metric tensor times contravariant components for both A and B, and that's true both in the dot product and in the length terms in the denominator. In the next line, we use the mixed, that is one covariant, one contravariant component, and in that case you don't need the metric tensor. And as I mentioned in the discussion about using mixed components for the length, the A and B indices need to be the same in the numerator of this expression. The third way of writing this uses the contravariant components of the metric tensor and the covariant components of A and B. Once again, the angle between the vectors does not care how you represent those vectors, so these expressions must be the same, and it must be the function of the metric tensor to ensure that these come out the same. So that's why you may well read the statement that the metric tensor provides the dot product. That is, it shows you how to find the lengths of vectors and how to find the angles between vectors in the space you're dealing with. To see what all this has to do with tensors, take a look at the coordinate transform for DXJ from the unprimed into the primed system as shown on the bottom of page 142. There you see, as we've had before, dx superscript prime i is equal to the partial derivative of x superscript prime i with respect to x superscript j times dx superscript j. That's just our standard transformation equation for contravariant components. But when we form ds squared using this, we get nine different terms that will help you understand why we call the metric tensor a tensor. Four of those terms are written out at the bottom of page 142, and 5 at the top of 143. You'll notice all we've done there since we're taking ds squared. We've got all the combinations for three-dimensional space, partial derivatives which we've gathered in the brackets, and the components which we've put over on the right. It's not easy to see much useful in that until you take a careful look at what's inside the brackets. It's the sum of the products of the partial derivatives of each of the transformed coordinates with respect to the original unprimed coordinates. In other words, what's inside those brackets are products of the components of the basis vectors in the unprimed coordinate system expressed in the new coordinate system. And it's those terms within the brackets that we're going to call the elements of the metric tensor. You can see this on the bottom of page 143, where we've simply taken the brackets from the first term, that is the first one back on page 142, and we've called that G sub 1, 1. Why is that 1, 1? Notice in the denominator, we're dealing with the unprimed coordinates, and those all have index of 1. Likewise, the second one, G sub 2, 2, all of the unprimed coordinates in the denominator have index 2 and so on for g33, and some of the terms with mixed indices, 1, 2, 1, 3, 2, 3, and since it doesn't matter which way we multiply these, we know that g21 must equal g12, and so on. So the indices tell you which of the basis vectors you're dealing with. When you take those bracketed terms and replace them with these g's, you get the expression on the top of page 144 which says that ds squared, remember this is the square of a length so it doesn't matter whether we're in the primed or the unprimed system, is equal to g sub 1 1 dx superscript 1 dx superscript 1 plus g sub 2 2 dx superscript 2 dx superscript 2 and so on through all the terms we've simply replaced all of the bracketed partial derivative terms with the elements of g that can be simplified even more using the summation convention in which we notice sum over repeated indices and there you see equation 5.13 on the top of page 144 which says ds squared is equal to g sub ij dx superscript i dx superscript j and as it says in the next paragraph the object that has elements g sub ij does meet the definition of a tensor that is it transforms as a tensor must transform but look at the job it's doing here It's relating increments of the coordinates to a length which is invariant between coordinate systems. That's exceptionally powerful, and if it's not clear exactly what that means, you'll see it in a minute when we apply it to spherical coordinates. In the middle of page 144, I've just written out the components of the covariant basis vectors, that is, those basis vectors tangent to the coordinate axes, and there you see e sub 1, e sub 2, and e sub 3 as those basis vectors. And in equation 5.15, writing out g sub ij from the derivatives on page 143, we can see how these are, in fact, the basis vectors dotted together. So what the metric tensor is really telling you is the relationship between the axes of the coordinate system you've chosen. If, for example, you pick Cartesian coordinates, then you know that each basis vector is perpendicular to the others, so that dot product is going to yield 0 unless you have the same index, that is E sub i dot E sub i, in which case you get 1. So you might already guess that the elements of the metric tensor in orthonormal Cartesian coordinates are going to be ones on the diagonal and zeros on the off-diagonal. It's easier to see this if you look at a non-Cartesian coordinate system. Let's take the spherical polar, for example, r theta phi. On the top of page 145, we've just substituted for x, x superscript prime 1, for y, x superscript prime 2, and for z, x superscript prime 3. x superscript 1 is r, x superscript 2 is theta, and x superscript 3 is phi. Now, in order to find the elements of the metric tensor, we just have to take the derivatives that are indicated on this page. All those derivatives are written out in the middle of page 145. They're actually pretty straightforward to calculate. But when you take those elements and form the products that are indicated in equation 515 on page 144, you get the terms that are shown at the bottom of page 145. There you see g sub 11 one, 1 turns out to be 1 g sub 2 2 turns out to be r squared and g sub 3 3 turns out to be r squared sine squared theta. Now you should be able to get those just by looking at the derivatives up above and plugging them in, but if you need some help with that this is the subject of one of the chapter end problems, and of course the online solution is available to you. Those three were the diagonal elements. For the off diagonal elements, look at the top of page 146 and you'll see they all turn out to be zero. So finally, in equation 5.17, you see the elements of the metric tensor for spherical polar coordinates. We've got the three diagonal elements that we just found, 1, r-squared, and r-squared sine-squared theta, and all the off-diagonal elements are 0. Now as it explains in the next paragraph, whenever the off-diagonal elements are 0, it means that the axes intersect at a right angle. That is, you still have an orthogonal coordinate system. That must be true, because the off diagonal elements are formed by dotting together different basis vectors. And if those dot products give zero, those basis vectors must be perpendicular to one another. You might say, yes, but I thought spherical polar coordinates were curvilinear. Well, in fact, they are. But the axes still meet at right angles. That is, the r-hat direction is perpendicular to the theta-hat direction, and those are both perpendicular to the phi-hat direction. So spherical polar coordinates are still orthogonal coordinates. The axes are all perpendicular to one another. But if you want to know the incremental separation between two points expressed using spherical coordinates, then you've got to look at equation 5.18. It says that ds squared, the square of that incremental separation, is not just dr squared plus d theta squared plus d phi squared it's dr squared plus r squared d theta squared that's the g sub two, 2 element r squared of the metric tensor in front of the d theta squared term and likewise in front of the d phi squared term is r squared sine squared theta that's the g sub 3 3 element of the metric tensor so what the metric tensor is really helping you do is to turn a change in a coordinate into a distance change In the case of dr, that's already a distance, and therefore the metric tensor provides 1 in front of that term. But you can't take an incremental angle change and expect that to give you the distance change. For that, you need to multiply by r, because if you move a little increment d theta in the theta direction while keeping r constant, the distance you move is r d theta. So in front of the d theta squared term, you must have an r squared. Likewise, if you make a little change in v, the amount of distance between the two points defined by those two different values of phi depend not only on r, but on sine theta. And that's why the r squared sine squared theta appears in front of the d phi squared term. Now if you had used a different three-dimensional coordinate system, then in front of each of those squares of the coordinates, you would have had different factors. As we said, in the case of orthonormal Cartesian coordinate systems, you just have dx squared plus dy squared plus dz squared. Each of the diagonal elements of the metric tensor in that case is 1 and of course all the off diagonal elements are 0. Now for any orthogonal coordinate system, that is, one in which the axes meet at right angle, there's another term frequently used and that is the scale factor. The scale factor is defined as the square root of the diagonal elements of the metric tensor. You see this toward the bottom of page 146. h1 is equal to the square root of g11, h2 is, is the square root of g22, and h3 is the square root of g33. For the case we just did of spherical polar coordinates, that means that h1 being the square root of g11 is the square root of 1, which is 1. h2 being the square h2 is the square root of g22, which is the square root of r squared, which is just r and h3 is the square root of g33, which is the square root of r squared sine squared theta, which is just r sine theta. Why bother with scale factors? Well, it turns out, if you know the scale factors for your coordinate system, you can easily find expressions for the differential operators, divergence, gradient, curl, Laplacian, using the expressions on the top of page 147. There you see, to find the gradient of phi in your coordinate system, with scale factors H1 and H2 and H3, you can use that first equation on page 147 where it says the gradient of phi is just 1 over h1, partial of phi with respect to x superscript 1 times e1 hat, the basis vector pointing along the first coordinate axis, and two more terms for the other two coordinates. You can also use scale factors to find the divergence, On the next line, you see the divergence of A is 1 over the product of all three scale factors times the derivative shown there. Notice that the scale factors may have coordinate dependencies within them, so that's why they're inside those partial derivatives. The next one shows the curl, which is written both in matrix form and below that. It's expanded out, and the Laplacian is the last one shown here. You can apply these to any coordinate system. One example is worked in the problems at the end of the chapter. Section 5.6 is a very short section beginning on page 147 and what it deals with is the ability of the metric tensor to raise or lower indices, that is to convert between covariant and contravariant components. An example of this is shown in equation 5.19 on the bottom of page 147 where the contravariant component a superscript j is turned into the covariant component a sub i by multiplying the metric tensor times the contravariant component. The way I always look at an equation like that is that the j in the metric tensor is telling you to pull that contravariant j index down and replace it with i. If you're wondering how the heck that works, it's actually pretty easy to see. You know from chapter 4 that the covariant components a sub i are just equal to the vector a dotted into the covariant basis vectors e sub i. So write that equation down, and then in place of the vector a, expanded out using its contravariant components. So, where you had written the vector a, now write a superscript j, e subscript j. When you do that, you should see that you now have a superscript j times the dot product between e sub i and e sub j. That dot product is just g sub i j. So, that's why g can lower the indices. Another example is shown on the top of page 148, in which case the contravariant components of the metric tensor G superscript ij can be used to raise an index. In this case, the covariant index B sub i is raised to the contravariant index B superscript J as shown in equation 520. Once again the contravariant index I in the metric tensor tells you to pull up B's covariant index I and replace it with J. But this process doesn't just work with vectors it works with higher order tensors. Three examples are shown in equation 521. In the first one we have a second rank tensor A with two covariant indices and by applying the metric tensor we pull one of those indices in this case the I covariant index is turned into a J contravariant index. In the middle example we have a third order tensor C with two contravariant indices and one covariant. That's on the right side of this equation. The covariant elements of the metric tensor G sub Js are used to pull the contravariant component S down to a covariant index and replace it with J, and that's on the left side of that equation. And in the last of equations 521, the third-rank tensor T has a covariant index L pulled up to join the two contravariant indices that already exist using the contravariant elements of the metric tensor. Okay, the remaining sections of this chapter deal with the issues that arise when you try to take derivatives of tensors. Those are dealt with in the next podcast.